We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthian church for the past month because that's been the epistle readings from missionary for this year. And 1 Corinthians appears to be Paul's response to a letter that he had received from the Corinthian church. Now, we, we don't have that letter. But we do know from Paul's response that there must have been in that letter a certain mixture of criticism of Paul and questions that they presented to Paul. But what we also know from the letter is that Paul's, Paul had some deep concerns for the Corinthian church. There were problems in that church that were serious in, in Paul's mind. So what were some of these problems? Well, certainly pride was one of them. Paul refers to them at least five times in this letter as being proud or arrogant. A second problem in the church involved their misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts. They argued over who had the best gifts, what were the best gifts, and they forgot that those gifts had been given to them for the common good of the church and the good of the community, not to make them feel somehow superior to one another. Now, in today's reading from chapter 15, we discover another problem. There were at least some in that church that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul begins this part of his letter not with an attack on these people, but rather with a reminder that the bodily resurrection of Christ is an essential part of the gospel, the gospel that he had preached, the gospel that they had received. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In your pew Bible, you'll find it on page 879, and we'll read verse 1, starting with verse 1, and then read verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15. Now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as Scripture said. Now, Paul then reminded them that Christ's resurrection was validated by hundreds of witnesses, eyewitnesses, truth-trustworthy eyewitnesses. So this gospel story of resurrection is undeniably true in Paul's mind. But that was not really the issue in Corinth. Notice that Paul says to them, you still stand firm in it, meaning the gospel, the good news. Apparently, they had no difficulty believing that Christ had been raised from the dead, What they were having a problem with was the idea of the resurrection of the dead for people like us. How could we we be raised from the dead? The problem is uncovered in, in verse 12. Look down at that in 1 Corinthians 15. But tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? So that was the problem. They weren't doubting that Christ was raised. They were doubting their resurrection. They were denying the resurrection. 
Now, we don't know if that was a large group of people in the church or a small group of people in the church, but regardless, Paul's desire was to solve that problem, deal with the problem, and fix it. So let's consider some reasons why people in that church didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is our conjecture. Paul doesn't tell us. First, there was the possibility that they thought they had already experienced the resurrection of the dead when they were brought into new life by their faith in Christ. They were given new birth, as it were, by their faith in Christ, and, and maybe they thought that's the only resurrection they needed. And of course, they were partly right in that respect because they had experienced a spiritual resurrection. They were moved from death into life by their faith in Christ when they committed themselves to him. We see this acted out in our practice of baptism by immersion. A person being pushed into the water is shown to be dead. Brought out of the water, they are shown to be raised to new life in Christ. It's a picture of a spiritual reality. And, and, it, and it's a lovely picture. Look at the smile on that face. That's the smile of resurrection, new life. Now, this may have been the case in Corinth, But by focusing on a spiritual resurrection, they were dismissing a bodily resurrection. Paul was not about to allow that to happen. Second reason that they might have denied the bodily resurrection was that they were too influenced by their surrounding culture. Ashton talked about how all of us are influenced by the culture that we live in, often in negative ways. It was generally accepted in Greek thought that everything that was good was spiritual and that everything that was material or physical was bad, including our bodies. They're corrupt. They're evil. And with that sort of thinking, they were very happy to believe in the immortality of the soul. They couldn't get their head around the immortality of the body. It just felt impossible to them. The body is not worth redeeming. The biblical view of the body, however, is completely different. It's completely positive. The human body was created by God, and we get the impression from Genesis that it was created with special and loving care, but even of greater significance. The second person of the divine trinity, Jesus, clothed himself with the human body, becoming fully human without losing a bit of his divinity. And Jesus is for all eternity fully human, fully divine. The physical world, the body, are good according to the Bible, not corrupt and evil as they would be in Greek philosophy. Paul's main argument in chapter 15 is that the resurrection of our bodies is an essential part of what Christians believe. It was a problem in the Corinthian church that needed to be corrected. Now, as we look more closely at Paul's correction of the problem, uh, we're going to see two consequences that result if we don't believe in the resurrection of the body, and we're going to see two benefits if that message, that gospel message of the resurrection is true. The first consequence he outlines is that if there is no bodily resurrection, then Christ was not raised from the dead. He says, tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. 
Not too difficult to follow his line of argument or thinking. Jesus, our Savior, was, was born with a human body, formed in a mother's womb, just like us, exactly like us. Well, the conception was different, but that gestation was just like ours. He was born of a human mother. However, to many in Corinth, that would have been utterly offensive, that God would have anything, any God would have anything to do with mortality and physical things. Now, that problem is seen evidenced in church history as people in the church began to develop what we call heresies to try to resolve this issue of how God, who is perfect, could have any kind of contact with a body that's corrupt and evil. And they came up with a number of different heresies that basically denied that Christ was fully human. Uh, Some of you that have done some study at places like Providence College or other places have heard the word docetism. It comes from the word meaning to seem, S-E-E-M. And they would say it only seemed like Jesus had a physical body. It only appeared that he had a physical body. No, they said he was pure spirit. That's a heresy in the church. The church believes that Christ is fully human, fully divine. So Paul confronts them with this reality. If there is no bodily resurrection, then Christ is not alive. He's not been raised to life. I can imagine Paul, if he were standing on this platform here today, and some of us did not believe in the bodily resurrection, he'd say, all right, you don't believe in the bodily resurrection, that means Jesus hasn't been raised. Go out and get a whole bunch of buckets of black paint, and let's cover up that window. Let's cover it up. Because that window's not true. If there is no bodily resurrection, Jesus did not come back from death. He was not raised by God to life. Well, the first consequence, that's the first consequence, that that if there's no bodily resurrection, Jesus isn't raised. That leads to the second, which Paul outlines in verses 14 to 19. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Notice how he keeps repeating this over and over and over again. It was to drive that point home. This is the consequence. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the body, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. He uses some strong language to make his point. Three words describe our present condition if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Guilty, lost, pitiful. Guilty because we're still caught in the trap of our own sin. Lost because there's no way out of that. We can barely manage to break the bonds of some of our habits. There's no way we can escape our sin without God, without Christ. Pitiful because we've been fooled by lies or clever fables. A fourth word describes our Christian faith and practice. Useless. All the way to, this service is useless if Christ has not been raised from the dead. We might as well go do something else. 
It's useless. We're wasting our time. Well, that's Paul's logic. Keep it in mind. He also argues the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. Just as millions of Christians say weekly, actually, I, I think we could safely say daily as they recite the Apostle Creed and in morning and evening prayer services or in their own home. We say in the Creed, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose from the dead. That's true. So since the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a fact, then our future resurrection is a certainty. That's Paul's logic. He argues Jesus did rise from the dead. If he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. Those are the consequences if there's no resurrection. Christ didn't rise. Our Christianity is worthless. Now let's follow what Paul says about the benefits if the resurrection of the body is true. The first is introduced in verse 20. Now it's interesting that even though Paul is writing to a Gentile congregation, he uses Jewish language and metaphor to make his point. I don't know if that's because there were a lot of Jews in the congregation or just because he was so Jewish is the first thing that came to his mind. But that's what he does. It's based on Leviticus chapter 23. But the verse that he says in verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In Leviticus 23, Moses says, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I am giving you and you harvest its first crops, bring a priest, the priest, a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. Now the first harvest was usually the barley harvest uh, in, in that culture, that time. And when they when the, when the barley began to ripen, they would take a sheath of grain, they'd take it to the priest as an offering, and it was called the offering of the first fruits. It was an act of giving thanks to God for the harvest, and it was an act of really consecrating the rest of the harvest to God. The Hebrew word is bekurim, which means literally promise to come. The first fruit was a promise that the rest of the harvest was going to come in. The sheath of grain says the rest is going to be harvested. So Paul calls Jesus the first fruit, saying he was the first to rise from the dead, which means the rest of the harvest is guaranteed. We too will be raised to new life. And he, he explains it in the following verses. Verse 21, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Was Jesus the first to be reanimated? No. The daughter of Jairus was dead. Jesus raised her up and brought her back to life. Lazarus was dead in the tomb for a couple of days. His body stunk. Jesus reanimated him and brought him back out of the tomb. That was not resurrection. Because they all died again. When you've experienced resurrection, you don't die again. 
That's done. That's past. You die. You're given a new resurrection body. That body doesn't die. That's the difference. Christ is the first fruit of that. He was the first to have a resurrection body that would never die. We follow as the rest of the harvest. We will not die again. I want to note one other little detail from how Paul carefully words this. He very carefully says that Christ was raised from the dead. It's a passive tone. Christ was raised. He didn't walk out. He was raised from the dead. God did it. The point of that is, resurrection didn't have anything to do with Jesus when he was in the grave. It was God. Our resurrection has nothing to do with us. It's what God will do for us and in us. That's his business. That's the first benefit. We will be raised by God to resurrection life. Our lives are not finished when we die physically here on earth. Maybe we can say that they're just really beginning once we've died here on earth. The second benefit is the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of God's complete victory over evil in every form. Again, Ashton was talking about the book of Revelation, declares that God is one. That's true. The resurrection is the guarantee of that fact. That's why artists often portray Christ as victor when they're painting pictures of the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus is proof, all the proof that we need, that the success of God's redemptive work in Christ Jesus is complete and finished and absolute. Look at verses 24 to 28, but note the words I've highlighted in these verses. After that, the end will come, and he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scripture says, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. Then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority, so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything and everywhere. There are two dominant words in these verses. Did you catch them? All and every. All and every. Since sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, it's felt like the world has been a battlefield between good and evil. And often it feels like, to the observer, like it's a good question as to who's going to win. In the 20th century, it looked like evil was going to win. Add up the numbers of the people who died in the 20th century with wars and abuse, palm grounds. Just add it up. Does it not look like evil was winning? Sometimes just listening to the daily news gives us the feel that evil is winning. But the resurrection points us towards this bold, strong image of Christ's victory. All of God's enemies, all and every enemy is defeated by Christ's work. 
And the guarantee of that is Christ's resurrection. There, in the words of Martin Luther, lo, their doom is sure. They're done. Well, that essentially concludes Paul's arguments for the resurrection of the body. So we might ask, what has that got to do with us today at Elam Chapel? We, we're not like the Corinthians. We, we believe in the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead. But I've been thinking about that this week. Not so much about Elam, but just about Christianity in, in North America. I, I was thinking about sermons and, and music. When I was growing up, it seemed like I all the time heard sermons about heaven. And, and when we sang, we sang songs like, When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. We, we sang those songs every Sunday, it felt like. I don't remember the last time I preached a, a sermon on heaven. I'm not sure that I remember the last time I sang a song about heaven. I remember a conversation I had with Jim Peterson about eight years ago, and Jim said, you know, I think we don't pay enough attention to heaven. I said, yeah, Jim, I think you're right. But we don't. Have we become influenced by our world? Or to use Ashton's words, are we slimed by Babylon a little bit? Maybe we are. Have we lost our focus on the resurrection of the dead in heaven? Let's compare the two cultures for a minute. The Corinthian culture thought that the body was corrupt and bad, and they couldn't conceive of bodies being resurrected. In our world, it's almost the opposite. We look at the body as being beautiful and good and wonderful and of having great value, and we'll go to the greatest lengths that we can go to to take care of it. And our culture encourages us to do that, to exercise, to eat right, to take vitamins, to go to the doctor, to do this treatment, to do that treatment. You don't need to die, is basically what our culture is screaming at us in a way. The world we live in values life. It values the body and it encourages us to do all that we can do to prolong life and take care of the body. And there's nothing wrong with that because God has given us these bodies and we're to be stewards of them. But if that's where our vision stops, then there's something wrong with that. Because as Christians, we're always called to keep one eye open beyond this life and this body to the age to come and the resurrection bodies in which we will spend eternity with God. Our our culture is coming up with a new twist, however, on this, I believe. I'm going to exercise maybe a lack of caution in in broaching this subject. But uh, you know this word, made? It's what we sometimes wish we had in our house to do the dusting. Uh, It's not what this word means. It means medically assisted, medical assistance in dying. Medical M, assistance A, N, I, dying. And it's part of Canadian legislation. It's part of Manitoba's legislation. It's this step our world is saying that the body is a great thing and life is a great thing as long as it's all working right. But if it quits working right or you're just feeling miserable or you don't like 
the state of your body, then just end it. And, and it's portrayed as something loving and kind. Doesn't it feel like to us that our culture is moving towards a very low view of life? Maybe we're becoming more like the culture that Corinth was in. We've lost God's view of life. The resurrection of the dead calls us to cling tightly to the promises of the gospel and to live our lives as those who believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is our hope. This is our confidence. This is what gives us strength when we do funerals. We've seen some great, wonderful, godly people die in the last several years from Elam. Wonderful people. And it's been hard. But we can stand at their grave and affirm our confidence that they will be brought back to life, full resurrection life, more glorious than any life they've known here, and we will be reunited with them. That's our hope. That's our confidence. First, Christ will come and raise to life all those who have followed him with new resurrection bodies, just as he was raised to life. And then the defeat of all of God's enemies will be completed. Well, how do we keep focused on the resurrection? How do we live our lives now with all the things we have to do, all the problems we have? How do we keep our eyes focused on the resurrection? There's no pill you can take and and no magic bullet I can offer you. It's basically back to the basics. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus, the first to rise from the dead. We have to keep our eyes on him. We have to keep our eyes on God who raised Christ to life and who is going to raise us to eternal life. We need to stay near to God and not get distracted by everything around us that would try to demand our time, our attention, our energy. And how do we do that? Habits. Habits. If there's one thing I I feel convicted to preach on as I get old is habits. You're here this morning probably because it's your habit to come to church. It was cold. Pembina Highway was shut down. Uh, You were probably tired. You could have had a host of reasons not to come here today, but you came because this is your habit. It's a good habit. Some of you put money in the offering this morning. Maybe it was a stretch on your finances, but you did it because that's your habit. It's a good habit. We need to keep cultivating those habits that keep us focused on God because that's how we're going to continue to be resurrection people, keeping our eyes on God. And we need to be aware of the influence of the culture on our lives. It basically keeps telling us this life is all there is, so you better get the most out of it, because when you're dead, you're dead. Because if we're not careful, we get influenced by the culture we live in. We begin to accept those terms, And we even suddenly begin to live by them. We remedy that by keeping our eyes on God. 
There's a, a hymn that I want to share with you. We're not going to sing it, but <clears throat> it's written by Christian Gellert, a, a German poet and philosopher who died too young. He wanted to be a minister, but health problems didn't allow that, so he became a professor of philosophy. But he wrote a bunch of hymns. These hymns were not academic hymns. The, the hymns he wrote were hymns that were, as we might say, out of his heart. He wrote hymns that were an expression of what he longed for and what he wanted and what he believed. And he wrote this hymn on resurrection. I'm only going to share with you three verses that I, that I believe are going to be on the screen. Jesus lives, and so shall I. Thy Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me with the just. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives, and by his grace, victory o'er my passions giving. I will cleanse my heart and ways, ever to his glory living. Me he raises from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives, and death is now but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Thou shalt find thy hopes were just. Jesus is the Christian's trust. We remain resurrection people by keeping our attention focused on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Paul has expounded for us in logical, coherent terms the connection between your gospel and your resurrection and what it means for our lives. We too, as part of the harvest, shall be given new bodies and will live. May we use this life to help prepare ourselves for that glorious life to come. For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.